couple nights ago, my wife Megan and I were just lying in bed, talking about life, you know, as couples do, talking about our friends and people that are kind of in our life that we that we love, people that we're praying for, uh, people that either know Jesus or we long to come to know the life that is in Jesus and some of the stories that we're a part, some of the things that these people are are wrestling with. And in the course of our talking, it just kind of hit me in that moment, just the the level of hurt and brokenness that some of our friends are going through. And so here's just a few things that we have had come through our doors in just the past uh, several months and some of them just in recent weeks. Things like uh, people dealing with rape, self-harm, heavy drug use, or the heavy drug use of loved ones, physical abuse, stage four cancer, and and death, the loss of loved ones. And what strikes me is, you know, that's we're just one family <laughs> in one little corner, one little part of the world. And still the level of brokenness and grief and sadness that we run into uh, is can be staggering. It can be overwhelming. And here's the thing. Here's here's why I share this with you. Is the further that you go with Jesus, the further you walk down the road of discipleship, and seek to join Him in what He is doing in the lives around you, uh, in your neighborhood, in your city, uh, in your school, in your home. The more that this particular beatitude we're about to look at is going to be important. And it's actually a beatitude that we've already looked at. It's the one we just looked at, and I want to double down on it uh, for the reasons I just mentioned. And it's this. This is Jesus' words in Matthew 5. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And notice there's two pieces, two parts to this beatitude. There is the grief in the mourning, and then there is the comfort, or for those of us who are in Christ, who are kingdom people, comforting. And I think this is so important for anybody and everybody who's listening to this, who is walking in the way of Jesus, because the thing is, and I believe this with all my heart, the older I get, the more convinced I am of it, the more connected we are to both to God and to the people around us that he's placed around us, the more we are going to continue to encounter brokenness and mourning. And so I think that it is so important that before we go any further, or as we go further into this and into the journey with Jesus, it is so important that we learn how. Now, before I go any further, I do want to give credit where credit is due. You know, all of us who who create or who write or who teach, uh, we're constantly pulling from uh, resources and ideas and insights of those who have gone before us. And that's true all the time. That's certainly true of what I'm going to share with you today, uh, specifically one person in particular, and that is uh, Pastor Dave Johnson. And I had the privilege 
of being a part of his church, uh, and he was my pastor in the flesh uh, for a short period of time, and he continued to be a pastor uh, from afar for a very long time. And so I just want to give a shout out to him uh, because I think he was the first who actually I heard walk through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and it it changed my life forever. So Dave, wherever you are, I just want to give you a huge thank you. In our first look at this beatitude, I referenced a passage that I think is just so important for us. It's it's one of the most profound moments for me in the life of Jesus. And I think it's really important and really relevant for what we're talking about. And it's found in John chapter 11. And in John chapter 11, Jesus is traveling, as he often did, with his disciples. You know, he is meeting needs. He is teaching along the way. He's performing miracles and healings as he goes. And then in John chapter 11, we're told that Jesus finds out that his good friend Lazarus is really sick. And so Jesus begins to make his way to Lazarus, but before he can get there, Lazarus passes away. And so we pick up the story in verse 32, and when Mary, Lazarus's sister, we're told, reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then this in verse 35, that Jesus wept. And I think this is pretty profound for a couple different reasons. First of all, You know, we find throughout the scriptures that God is a God who is moved. He's moved by the suffering of people. He is moved by the prayers of people. Um, And there are times when he mourns what we do to one another. And certainly he mourns sin and all that sin ushers in. And then here in the life of Jesus, we see it in an incredibly vivid way, right? That in Jesus, we see the character of God put on display God's son, divinity with skin on, in the flesh, and Jesus in this moment, moved by compassion, weeps with those who weep. And I think what really makes this profound is not only that, but in the verses that precede this, we find out that Jesus knows what is about to happen. He actually takes his time getting to Lazarus. He knew that Lazarus was going to die. And he actually, when Lazarus does pass away, he tells his disciples, this was actually better because now you're going to see God's heart and God's power, his glory put on display in a way that you couldn't have seen otherwise. And so Jesus knows in this moment that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's the plan. He knows that this is about to happen. And yet he is so moved in his heart and spirit by the pain and the brokenness of those he is seeing. Mary, who is a good friend, and also those with her, that he weeps. And we're told even a few verses later again that when he gets to the tomb, he is, he is deeply, deeply moved. Right, And so it's, it's, it's powerful. I think it's worth sitting and just noticing for a moment that in this moment that Jesus does not try to talk Mary out of her pain. He didn't try to talk her out of her grief. Um, And he didn't try to deflect her sadness by, 
you know, drawing her attention to what he's about to do. You know, cheer up. Guess what is about to happen? Like, don't cry, Mary. No, before Jesus did anything, he wept. He entered into her pain with her. And he mourned with this woman who was mourning. Also notice that there there are other things going on here. Now, Mary is not the only one that is mourning. We're told that there are Jews that had come along with her to mourn. And so we need to kind of enter into the scene of what's happening here to kind of get a feel uh, for what's going on. And I think this would have been actually a pretty chaotic scene that Jesus steps into. There would have been a lot of different things going on. Uh, first of all, uh, we're told, you know, many people had come to mourn with Mary and with Martha for the loss of their brother. And some of those people actually would have been professional mourners, right? These were people, this was part of their job and their role was to be a professional griever, a mourner with those who mourn. And this still exists today. In fact, you've probably seen it on the news uh, when there's a big crisis or some tragic event that happens in, say, the Middle East. You'll see people often on the news who are so expressive with their grief and their mourning and their sadness. And I actually think that it makes Westerners, uh, us generally pretty uncomfortable because we don't, right. We don't act like that. Uh, oftentimes, like that's not the way we behave at funerals or with those who have just lost somebody. Not, not, not typically, but this would have been very normal. Um, these people would have been, uh, they would have torn their clothes. Uh, they would have covered themselves in ashes um, they often would would throw themselves on the ground. Again, a little strange to us, but this was just a part of the the expression of grief. And there would have been others uh, there. Um, some of them reading ancient Jewish prayers for the dead. Um, but all of this would eventually give way to a ancient practice called sitting shiva. Shiva is a Hebrew word for seven, and in this practice those closest to those, the person who lost somebody. So in this particular story, this would have been Mary and Martha, those closest to these sisters would have for seven days sat with them in their pain and nobody would have said a word. In fact, that's the most important rule is that nobody can break the silence except for those people who are in mourning. Everybody else for seven days and for seven nights would simply sit there in their pain and be silent. Because the less that is said in a situation that you can't understand, that is full of pain, and you can't explain and you can't fix, the better, right? The less words, the better, which is the opposite of what I think we we typically do. Now, this practice of sitting Shiva, um, there we we learn about it from a number of different historical sources, but the most compelling and captivating biblical source for us is actually found in the book of Job. And if you don't know the story, Job is this good man who goes through this crisis and loses basically everything in his life. And these three friends come to him to be comforters, to mourn with him as he mourns, and it doesn't go well. But it starts off actually... Uh, pretty great. Um, and then somewhere along the way, they actually, they get off track and something goes really wrong. And so I, I want to just dial in here because as a people who are following Jesus into mission, 
and as a people who are asking God to break our heart for the things that break his heart and who will continually come face to face with brokenness, uh, we have to learn how to become comforters. So Job, what do we know about Job? The story begins by telling us that Job is actually uh, a good person. Um, and this creates some tension. He's actually, he hasn't done anything wrong. We're told that he is a righteous man. Um, he's called blameless, upright. Uh, he's a God-fearing man. Uh, he's a turn away from evil kind of person. And he's lived a pretty good life. He's got a big family, seven sons, three daughters. He's got a supportive wife and he's got lots of livestock. So he would have been considered a very successful man in his day. The kind of guy that, you know, most everybody longs to be and kind of life that most people long to live. But in a series of events, uh, Job loses pretty much everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. He, he loses his kids. He loses his cattle. Uh, he loses the support of his wife. He loses his standing in the community. And then after all of that, he loses his health as well. And we, when we find him, he is covered head to toe in boils and just uh, living a, he's living a tragedy is what he's living. And so we read this when Job's three friends heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, uh, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, they set up from their homes. They met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and to comfort him. But when they saw him from a distance and the physical condition that he was in, they could hardly recognize him. And so we're told that they do a very appropriate thing, and that is they begin to weep aloud. And they throw themselves on the ground. They tear their robes. They throw dirt, dust on their, their heads. A uh, very similar scene, by the way, to what we would have seen in John 11 at, at Lazarus's tomb, that scene that Jesus was in. And then we're told this, they, then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Something that you and I now know is called sitting Shiva. And there's a, there's a book by William Hume and he called, it's actually entitled Dialogue in Despair. And he calls this sitting Shiva, it's a sacramental silence, which I love that. It's a sacrament. It's a sacred practice, sacramental silence. And he writes this, it's a, it's a nonverbal and yet tangible communication of the spirit, right? Most of us have had the experience of not knowing what to say when ministering to someone overcome with grief. And fortunately, most have the good sense to say nothing because our presence spoke for itself and it would be the basis for whatever words may be said at a later time. Now, I just want to ask you if you've ever been there. And I'm guessing that most of us, most of us have. Um, in fact, some of us on the ground here in Knoxville, we were in this place just several months ago when a beloved principal and friend suddenly and unexpectedly passed away. Um, this was the principal of the school, elementary school in our neighborhood where all three of our kids have gone. And she was a beloved uh, principal. She was a champion of teachers. She was a champion of kids and especially the tough kids. Uh, man, the, 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 the hole that she left behind 
the crater of impact is is huge and and the repercussions honestly they're still being felt and it just so happens that her daughter uh, is really good friends with our oldest daughter and we actually took their daughter to school every day and then we got a call one monday morning from her husband letting us know why their daughter would not be at our house that morning and that was because she had suddenly and there her mom had suddenly and passed away the night before and i remember that night um, we were one of the first ones to know because mostly just because of that connection. Um, they weren't a part of our church or anything. We weren't there because I'm a pastor. We were just we were just there and close. And we offered to bring them dinner. And that, that night we brought them dinner. And I remember just standing in the kitchen with, with his, her husband and her daughter and feeling the weight. You know what I mean? Like if you can just imagine the turret of emotions and all of the different kinds of emotions going on in that that moment and there's a certain lostness you know what i mean like you're just in the midst of the storm and so in that moment just to ask you if you're in that moment like what what do you say honestly like what what do you say like what what do you say to a person that just lost their best friend um their partner in life and in parenthood uh, what do you say to her daughter who just lost the most important person in her life? You know, what do you, what do you say to the teachers, right? Who, who are grieving and scared about their future because they just lost their leader and champion. I think the right answer is, I don't know. Um, I don't know, but, but can I tell you something? If you live on mission, you're going to be in similar circumstances. You're going to be standing in that kitchen one day. The details will be different, but if you follow Jesus, you're going to be there because hurt and brokenness, they're everywhere. And there are times as you live on mission and those around you in your sphere of influence, next door in your circles, who is mourning. And in that moment, the mission becomes the mourning or rather the mourning becomes the mission. And so all that to say, I think it's so important to talk about because if you've ever been in that place, you know that there is a internal feeling, like a temptation to just fill the space with words because you don't know what else to do. And, and oftentimes I actually think in those moments, having been in a number of them at this point in my life, that it actually, I think, has more to do with us than it does with them, right? I think it has a lot to do with our own discomfort, with with their pain and their loss and their grieving. And so we can err on the side of filling the space with words. And we have to be so careful not to do this because what ends up typically ends up happening is we don't just fill the, the space with words. We, we fill the space with foolishness and it happens just about every time we think we need to fix or explain what is happening. Like as if we could ever could do that. I once heard a story of a well-meaning pastor who was presiding over this funeral uh, of a young girl who had just lost her life in a car accident. And in this, I think, well-meaning attempt to bring comfort to her family who just lost their little baby girl, said this. He said, God must have needed another angel. Right? And so that was his exp explanation. Right? God was short on angels, and so he took yours. And friends, this is, this is the problem. Uh, when we try to fix something we can't fix or explain something we can't explain, I mean, typically, anytime we try to explain what God is up to, uh, 
we're almost always wrong because <laughs> we can't possibly know. And, and the good news is we don't, we don't have to know. And so in those moments, it's better to be silent than to fill the air. And for seven days and for seven nights, that is exactly what Job's friends did. They were sitting Shiva with him in silence, in solidarity with his pain and his grief. And then we read these words in chapter, beginning in chapter three, that after this, Job opened his mouth. Now, just imagine for a moment that you are one of those three friends who's been sitting here for a week in his pain, not saying a word. What do you want or expect or maybe need from him in this moment? Right? A little bit of speculation here. We don't know exactly what they needed, but if you're in the, I mean, maybe, maybe a little appreciation would be nice, right? Um, you made the trip. You made the effort and seven days and seven nights is a really long time. Um, maybe, maybe some assurance, assurance for your sake, really, uh, that Job's going to be okay. Um, maybe even better, some, some affirmation, you know, that his faith is still intact, you know, like, you know, maybe guys, I'm so glad that you took the time to make the trip to sit with me. I mean, man, things are bad right now, but. Come, I mean, God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. He's, he's in control. He's on the throne. And as you know, all things work together for the good. And when God closes a door, he opens a window, blah, blah, blah. Um, and you know, and if he said that, if he had said that, uh, I think Job's friends could have felt pretty good about their effort and, you know, they could have left with their assumptions and their cliches intact and maybe pray a prayer of blessing over him, make sure that he's got what he's needed, and maybe even head home sooner than later. Suffice to say, uh, that's not how this thing goes down. Uh, Job speaks, and this is what we hear. Uh, after this, Job opened his mouth, and he cursed the day of his birth. And now he's going to let loose. He said, may the day of my birth perish. And the night that said, a boy is conceived, that day may turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night may thick darkness seize it, and may it not be included among the days of the year. And then in verse 8 in the New Living Translation, he said, may those who are experts at cursing curse that day. Right? And so Job is... He is, uh, he's unleashing, he is venting. Um, he, he thinks he's in a safe place, but sadly he's not. And we we read that in this moment, after he says this, Job's friends, they pounce, they pounce. C.S. Lewis wrote a book after he lost his wife, um, years after he lost his wife called A Grief Observed. And and he talks about this moment in Job's life, and he describes it as a primal scream. And in the book, C.S. Lewis actually reflects on some of his own primal screams um, that took place after he lost his wife. And, 
and where it's in, you know, profound and long seasons of, of darkness and sadness and grief. And that is exactly where Job finds himself, right? This is a guttural primal scream. And he thought that he was in a safe place with safe people. Um, he wasn't worried about what he was saying, I don't think, right? He was just saying. He was feeling and it was coming out. And this is just how it came out. Well, sadly, he was not in a safe place. And so we read that Eliphaz, um, who's obviously threatened by Job's outburst, he doesn't like what he had to say at all. Um, he's going to actually pull a classic religious move here. Uh, it's heartbreaking, but it's it's common enough that we need to read it. This is what we read um, in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Right? He's going to speak. Uh, he's not going to be able to keep from speaking. Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees, but now trouble comes upon you and you're discouraged, strikes you and you're dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Who were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. All right, are you picking up what he's throwing down? You catching what he's saying? Uh, he is throwing all this back at Job. He is basically saying, Job, uh, if you're in a bad place, it's because of you. Like you have brought it on yourself. <laughs> it's you clearly are not a pious person, right? Um, you've, you're getting what you've sown. And, and here's, in addition to being theologically so wrong and so incorrect, which, which is one of the gifts that the book of Job is to us, is Job has done nothing wrong and he's experiencing suffering. Um, in addition to all of that, just being theologically bankrupt, um, you know, one of the things that we find for Eliphaz is like, I mean, he fits the bill for your classic uber-religious um, legalistic person because to him, man, I mean, everything is black and white, right? Everything's crystal clear. Everything can be explained easily. There is cause and there's effect, right? That's the universe that he lives in, which of course to him is a very safe universe because it's a predictable universe in his mind. And so he goes on, he says, so here's my advice. Chapter five, verse eight, as for me, I would seek God, right? Oh my gosh, the arrogance of this guy. I would seek God and I would place my cause before God that who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. He gives rain on the earth. He sends water on the fields that he sets so high. Those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Um, gosh, this guy, he, he knows, he knows what God is like and what God does and what God doesn't do and what he says and what he doesn't say. And he ends by just nailing the coffin in 527, he says, behold this, we have examined this and it is true. So hear it and go apply it to yourself. Um, anybody else want to punch this guy <laughs> at this moment? Is it just me? Um, let's get something clear. At this point in Job's pain, this, this conversation, this is no longer about Job. It stopped being about Job a long time ago. Um, at this point, this is about Eliphaz. <laughs> this is about his anger, his discomfort, um, his his 
own fear of what Job is going through. Uh, in reality, what we will find, what Job is going through doesn't fit his paradigm or the box in which his God exists. Uh, this is about Eliphaz, and Job is wise enough and been around the block enough to know this, and he points it out in chapter 6, verse 21. He says, you two have given no help. You have seen my calamity which come upon me, and you are afraid. Right? And I think there's a word in here for us and when we enter into the pain of others, because you and I, we need to pay attention to something in us when something shifts. And it may shift the moment you walk into the room with that person who is grieving. Um, if you find yourself wanting to be defensive, you know, if you find yourself wanting to, to fight or argue or to correct what they're saying, you need to go back to your default mode. And I, I think for all of us, our default mode is to don't speak if you don't have to. Uh, don't correct them. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to explain it away. Just the moment you feel internally like you want to jump in and and fix, correct, explain what they're saying, uh, you feel defensive. Uh, just don't go back to go back to plan A. Well, Job pleads with his friends for understanding uh, to hear him and to show him kindness, and he stands his ground with Eliphaz. Um, so here comes his second friend, Bildad, and it's going to be it's going to be more of the same. And where Eliphaz might have felt like defensive in his response, Bildad at this point is is angry. And this is what we read. It says, then Bildad the Shuhite replied, how long will you say such things? This is in response to Job, his outburst. Your words are a blustering wind. And what Bildad is actually doing in this, in this moment is he's taking Job's own words and he's throwing them back in his face, right? So we might actually read it. How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Because in chapter six, all right, Job is just pleading for empathy and kindness. And to paraphrase, he's saying, essentially, you guys keep trying to correct me in my grief. And you keep trying to change my words or pull them apart and evaluate them. And, and he's like, don't you realize that the speech and the words of a man in despair belong to the wind? Right? That's all they are. They they belong to the wind. I Don't you understand? I'm not even sure what I'm saying right now. Right? Which is, which is really true. Um, oftentimes for those who are grieving, when people are hurt and they're afraid, they, and they are processing loss or just venting to somebody they perceive as being safe, uh, they're obviously, they're going to say things that they haven't really thought through. Um, they're going to say all kinds of things that probably aren't true, just so you know. Uh, they're going to say maybe heretical things, uh, things that are false, things that are uncomfortable maybe for us to hear. Um, and by the way, if you're a church person, like you grew up in church, right, you're going to feel the need to fix them because some of those things might be, uh, you know, completely false things about God, about life, about reality, they may be cursing the day that they were born, or they might curse you, um, or curse God, or curse the world and everything in it, the whole thing. Um, and just, if I can encourage you and us in this, despite 
whatever comes out of their mouth in those moments of pain, those primal screams of mourning and process, consider just maybe whatever you hear, maybe that wasn't their final answer, right? Maybe it, it was the wind. Maybe it belongs to the wind because mourning is messy. And this is what Job is pleading with from his friends here. Well, despite Job's best efforts, Bildad won't hear it. And just like Eliphaz, I mean, he offers very little empathy, a whole lot of religious cliches and easy answers. Um, and he comes at Job with rhetorical questions, which are not fair because uh, they're not questions. He's not looking for a response. He's giving Job the answer um, in the question. And Bildad goes on to suggest that, you know what? Hey, if your sons didn't die because of your sin, they died because of their sins, um, which I'm sure went over really well. Um, and then finally, Zophar gets up, the third friend, and basically says the exact same thing of the first two guys, right? If you would just do this, then God would do that. Which, again, just to point out, the whole book of Job is showing us that's not the way the world works. That's just not the way it works. Please don't say that. Don't do that. Um, unfortunately, Job is wise enough to know that. Job knows that he's innocent. Job knows that his sons and daughters were not uh, running around doing horrible things that might deserve such cruel and unusual punishment. So in chapter 12, Job's just going to write him off. And, and he re we, we read uh, this, and this is just dripping with sar sarcasm. He says, truly then, you are the people, and with you surely wisdom will die. Um in chapter 16, he says, uh, you, you all are just a bunch of sorry comforters. You've not been of any help to me. Uh, chapter 13, he says, you are worthless physicians with these religious cliches and easy answers. And, um, and then, uh, by the way, this is something that God is going to ultimately agree with in this story. And in chapter 42, God actually calls these three comforters evil. And he says, they, these are evil men. And they speak lies about me and my character. Uh, well, there is one more guy in the story. And his name is Elihu. And we actually don't hear a lot about him. Uh, we don't know a lot about him. And he, just like the other, the other three guys, um, he makes some mistakes. He does. He, he, still, he says some stupid things. Um, which is actually, I think, rather encouraging uh, because the thing is, you don't have to get this perfect. You're not going to. Um, if I've learned anything from stepping into moments of brokenness with people over the last 20 years, uh, you're, it is that you're going to say some stupid things. You're going to probably do some stupid things. Um, you're not going to get it just right. And the good news, friends, is you don't have to. And I, I personally, I think that's pretty good news. Um, so Elihu does that too. He says some dumb things. But there's a noticeable difference, a big difference between Elihu and the first three. And it's not that he had all the right answers. Hear me on that. The difference is that Elihu stepped into Job's pain with a different kind of spirit. And that is the thing that's actually going to make all the difference here. He doesn't condescend. Uh, he doesn't try to fix it. He doesn't try to explain it. He doesn't try to shut Job down or shut Job up. Um, 
this is what we read in chapter 33. He, he says this to Job. He says, I am the same as you in God's sight. Right. Uh, finally, somebody who's not uh, condescending and speaking down to Job, trying to fix him and fix the situation. And he says, I'm not above you. I'm not smarter than you. You're not below me. We are the same. He says, I too am a piece of clay, just like you. And he says, no fear of me should alarm you, nor should my hand be heavy upon you. I'm not going to shame you. I'm not going to make this harder than it already has been. I might disagree with you. Um, I might confront you, which he does. Uh, so does God, by the way, is going to confront Job and all these guys. Um, but his spirit, if you can hear it, is completely different. Right? He enters into the pain and gets down on Job's level. And as Elihu begins to speak, something amazing happens. Job actually starts to hear God. And we're told that he hears God in the whirlwind, which is a beautiful beautiful metaphor, right? Because it wasn't that they were in a physical whirlwind, these four, uh, five guys um, sitting here in the dirt. Uh, they weren't in a physical whirlwind. Job's life was the whirlwind. Uh, he was living the whirlwind. If you've ever walked with anybody through catastrophe, whirlwind is a perfect metaphor. And in that whirlwind, as Elihu enters in at Job's level with a different kind of spirit, God begins to speak. And this is the difference maker, right? Because the thing that we know about whirlwinds is when you're in it, uh, when you're in a whirlwind, but you don't, you don't need to know directions because honestly, when you're in that kind of pain, uh, nobody knows which way is up. What you need in that moment is somebody to be with you and to enter into your pain. So just a couple final thoughts for us as we seek to enter into the mourning of others as comforters. When, when mourning becomes the mission and we're seeking to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Uh, just a few things to remember because here's, just remember, you can do this. You can. You don't have to be a professional. And in fact, I think being a professional often gets in the way of doing this. <laughs> Whether you're a medical professional or a religious professional, um, anybody can do this. And if you follow Jesus, you're going to get plenty of opportunities. So, but as you do, just a couple things to keep in mind. Uh, first of all uh, is this, uh, just remember that silence is golden. Silence is golden. Um, I remember being early in ministry and feeling like I had to come in and, and you know, say something profound or share the perfect passage of scripture or a prayer that was going to change the temperature of the room. Um, and, and the truth is, uh, that's, that's not necessary. And oftentimes that's, that's not what people need in those moments. And I think that's really good news. So, so, so don't feel that pressure. Just go and be there. And most of the time, the best thing to do when you are 
sitting there right in the middle of their grief is to say nothing. All right, so that's number one. Number two, um, if they're going through something really hard, if they've lost something deeply personal, uh, just remember, you can't fix what's going on. Only God is going to be able to bring them through this. You can't fix it, so don't try. Uh, and you can't explain it, so don't try to do that either. Again, let yourself off the hook on this one. Don't try to fix or explain it, and, and definitely don't use religious cliches because as true as some of those things may even be, I think oftentimes religious cliches that comes off unfeeling and way too simplistic to deal with the level and the layers of grief that people are walking through. Like they need to be free just to, just to grieve. So again, when in doubt about what to say or what to do, just go back to plan A, go back to the default and sit with them in their pain, right? Just love them and listen to them. And then thirdly, I would just say this. Uh, lastly, just remember what Job pointed us to, and that is that a despairing person's words belong to the wind. So if they're going off and they're cussing you out and they're cursing at God and they're saying things that are blasphemous and heretical and biblically untrue, don't, don't assume that that's their final answer. Don't try to correct them. Just stay. Just let them have a primal scream or two or 10, if that's what it's going to take and just stay. You know why? Because as Ecclesiastes 4 verses 9 and 10 says, two are better than one. For if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity the one who falls and has no one to help them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. May that be more and more true of us as a church family, for our friends and those afar. Grace and peace, friends. <laughs>